BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The committee recommends that item one be re-referred to the Committee on Finance. The item is to further regulate automatic speed enforcement system be re-referred to the Committee on Finance. All right, enough city council meeting. <laughs> Come on, can we talk about it, please? Oh you God. know I love talking about obscure bills in the city council. <laughs> Please. No, no, we're done. We're done. <laughs> you have to eat your vegetables now. Eat those lima beans. I don't wanna. It's a new month. We just got to look forward. <laughs> <laughs> what would I do without my beloved Chicago City Council? <laughs> okay. Ray Lowe, stop swearing at Mayor Lightfoot. All right. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, November 2nd, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, our sponsors, as well as Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. Subscribe, help out the Chicago Reader. And if you want to help out this program, you can as well. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J O R A, V is in Victory S K Y. I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. I think you're 100% full of shit, is what I think. If you think we want offensive, fuck you then. Who are you to tell me I'm full of shit? The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, November 2nd, and live from downstate Illinois and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's The Ben Jarofsky Show debut, no pressure, of Andrew Ellison. No pressure. (laughs) And now your host. Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Kenosha, Virginia Tuesday, and here's why. Yes, there's no pressure on my next guest, Andrew Ellison. He, he is making his debut, but there's no pressure on him. All the pressure's on me. And Dennis. Dennis, you have a good weekend? Yes, I did. Very relaxing. And, Took uh, care of my mom. You're, yeah, I was going to say, uh, producer Vicky. hope she's doing well. Uh, Dennis's mom had minor surgery, and uh, Dennis went down, dutiful son as he is, uh, to help her out, to help her recuperate. So uh, he's doing the show for, as a remote from somewhere in downstate. Where her, he's our eyes and ears on the uh, Republican camp uh, efforts to unseat Governor J.B. Pritzker. Ooh, I, forgot, I forgot to and- send you that uh, Darren Bailey. Uh, yes, that was yard a just a reminder. Sign I showed you. The only pot, really the only news outlet, I would have to say, that routinely, regularly, news outlet from the Chicago, we're not even a news outlet, we're a podcast. We're a funky little podcast operating out of my attic in his apartment, and we're giving you the best coverage of the insanity, the lunatics running for governor on the Republican side. You're welcome, city of Chicago. That is correct. (laughs) For instance, that's the big fella herself, Darren Bailey. 
He's running as governor. Yeah, you guys don't know that. You Democrats, man. You Democrats in the city of Chicago. We're going to be talking about this with our guests. You Democrats in the city of Chicago, you like you live in a little bubble. And you don't understand that outside your little bubble, like Republicans are actively plotting against you. I'll give you one example. I wasn't even going to talk about this, but it just came in. I want to uh, thank Frank for sending this to me. Listener Frank sent me this. Roger Stone, who was uh, who sentenced uh, for fraud, was commuted by Donnie Trump. So a close uh, ally of Donald Trump is threatening to run as a libertarian against Ron DeSantis unless Ron DeSantis conducts a thorough examination of the voting in Florida in 2020. Let me remind you that Florida went fairly decisively for Donald Trump in 2020. There's absolutely no evidence of anything resembling voter fraud. And the state went for Trump. So if there's anybody who was the victim of fraud, it would be Joe Biden because the state went for Trump. But that has not stopped MAGA from registering all kinds of accusations about voter fraud in the state of Florida. Why? Because it keeps their voters on the edge. It's what their voters want to hear. Their voters want to hear that the election was stolen. And so MAGA will continue to feed them that propaganda. Keeps them motivated. They never get tired of voting. Democrats across the country, we have two elections today. Two significant gubernatorial elections, I should say. One in Virginia, one in New Jersey. Virginia, it's neck and neck. Terry McAuliffe, the uh, Democrat, looks like, I don't know, it's too close to call, running against Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, uh, who's a Trumpster. And uh, the Democrats are like, we're tired. You know, it's exhausting. I don't know, we can't do this all the time. Can we just take a break? I just want to watch... Squid games. Republicans don't get tired. It's one of the interesting things. Democrats get tired. Republicans just get fired up. They keep getting fed. They keep getting fed the propaganda by the Trump machine, which is relentless. Do you know how many emails I get a day from the Donald Trump machine? And I'm a Democrat. I vote Democrat. I've never voted. I haven't voted Republican since, I want to say, 1980. 1980. I voted for Bernard Carey in the state's attorney race against Richard M. Daley. 1980. My guest who's going to be on today wasn't even born in 1980. Dennis, my producer, wasn't even born in 1980. Hey there. No, I was not. (laughs) I'm a Democrat. I get virtually no emails from Democrats, but I get, I would say, 20 to 25 emails an hour from various Republican operatives. Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. My goodness, uh, Mike Pompeo, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I, I get them from all corners. Every now and then, Dick Cheney weighs in. Republicans never get tired, but Democrats are, oh, we're so tired. Anyway, I just uh, mind-boggling. So Roger Stone starting to run as a libertarian in Florida. You know he's never going to do it. Uh, but in order to keep the pressure on Ron DeSantis, who's already a MAGA, Ron DeSantis is leading the resistance to any kind of, uh, you can't wear a mask, you can't mandate masks, you can't mandate vaccines. You know, they denounce Fauci. So it's already a MAGA state. And he says he hasn't gone far enough. They're pushing him. Even DeSantis is getting pushed, relentlessly pushing the Republican Party. You can't even say it's really right, just into staying in line with Trump. 
So Roger Stone says he's going to run as a libertarian, and that could siphon off enough votes uh, where DeSantis would lose to a Democrat. You know it's not going to happen. You know it's just an idle threat. But they do it all the time. It's just to like keep the agitation going. I just saw a clip uh, on um, D.L. Hewley's page. A man was being interviewed in Virginia. A Virginia voter was being interviewed. He was asked, what is the most significant election issue in this election that's going to motivate you to vote? And the man said, well, I want to. I want our teachers. I'm worried about our schools. I want our schools to go back to teaching the basics and not stuff like critical race theory. And then the interviewer says, well, what is critical race theory? And the man goes, I really don't know. So I don't want to comment on it. Well, if you don't know what it is, how do you know you're against it? Well, I just have a general sense of what it is, and I'm against it. I don't want to taught in their schools. It's just like they got this issue, this, this, this thing, critical race theory. And it, it, to them, in the minds of MAGA, it's like what? White people are being victimized. Black people are getting an advantage. They're like trying to turn the country against white people. We're going to get defensive. We're going to rally to protect our students and our culture. Really weird, twisted stuff, but it fires up MAGA. And now in Virginia, it's neck and neck. Joe Biden won that state by 10 percentage points. Glenn Youngkin, neck and neck with Terry McAuliffe. Now, part of the problem is Terry McAuliffe. Been watching impeachment. You all know that. No, I don't think I'm. It's not really. I don't think it's getting traction in this country. Uh, the Ryan Murphy docudrama about the Bill Clinton impeachment. But uh, one of the things that that show illustrates is how, I don't know what the right word is, I guess despicable Bill Clinton is in his behavior uh, and how blatantly deceitful he was. He was constantly lying. There's that great moment in the last episode where in this deposition with um, Ken Starr, uh, and they point blank ask him, you know, uh, where's your lawyer lying when he said that you had no uh, sexual relations with Monica Linsky? And he, he came down and he goes, well, it depends what your definition of is is. It was such a slippery little maneuver that he made. And he nailed that lawyer in the deposition. And he, he could that you could see the frown on the lawyer's face. And they showed that dramatic cutback to the grand jury that was listening. And they were nodding along and Clinton's behalf. And you knew at that moment, Clinton had triumphed. I remember at the time feeling Clinton had beat him and so many Democrats were cheering. They were rallied behind Bill Clinton. It's like, we won that battle. Yeah, but guess who won the war? One of the aides to uh, Ken Starr was a young lawyer named Brett Kavanaugh, who's now on the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh, who is now opining on the abortion law in Texas and trying to very, very what, sophistic, in a sophisticated strike, strategically knock down that law, the provision in the law that allows, that deputizes citizens because he's afraid that it could be used against right-wing causes like, I don't know, if you want to prevent, if, if law if uh the governor of California wanted to prevent the sale of rifles and high weaponry in the state of California. So, all right, I'm okay with you basically outlawing Roe, outlawing abortion, overturning Roe in the state of Texas, but I don't want you to do it this way because it'd be used against our causes. So could you come up with a different way of using it? I mean, the guy is openly, blatantly a political animal, a political creature, just like he was in the 1990s, Brett Kavanaugh. 
when he was working for Ken Starr to bring down Clinton. And Clinton wiggled out of that. Slippery Bill, Slick slick Willie, wiggled out of it. But in so many ways, he diminished the Democratic Party. Everybody rallied around him, even though they knew how deceitful he was. And here we are in 2020, Terry McAuliffe, 2021, Terry McAuliffe running as governor of Virginia, a former Clinton aide. See, it's like haunts us, the Democratic Party. Like we pretend we have ideals. We believe in greater things than the Republicans, common good, common cause. And then we have Clinton and his slippery, deceptive behavior and just sort of undercuts us. So that in 2020, or excuse me, in 2016, when word breaks that Donald Trump has been caught on tape talking about grabbing women by the pussy, all Donald Trump does is bring out six of Bill Clinton's accusers, lines them up at debate, and they all talk about how uh, they're going to support Donald Trump. Totally undercut. Totally undercut Hillary Clinton's position. And I just think about Hillary Clinton running in the first place, carrying on that legacy. Anyway. So, yeah, Virginia is up for grabs. So is New Jersey, by the way. I was really caught off guard by that. There was an article in the paper that, I don't know. You know, sometimes I think these uh, the New York Times is in the business of just uh, picking up clicks by scaring liberals. And Democrats by saying this race is so close, be scared, be very scared. People click. Talked about that with David Ferris in the past. Hey, you know, I just, I don't know. But anyway, they say uh, Philip Murray, the incumbent uh, governor of New Jersey, being challenged uh, by a Republican, uh, Jack uh, Centrelli, uh, is in trouble. Yeah, the Republican is using the old tax and spend liberal line. That line has been used for so long. It's like my whole life I've been hearing Republicans call Democrats tax and spend liberals. And the notion is somehow or other, they're feeding this notion that you, the taxpayer, are paying taxes that you wouldn't ordinarily have to pay because they, the Democrats, are what's squeezing you. And I'm trying to think of where my tax dollars go. And there's a lot of things that I object to. Military spending, where my tax dollars go. But a lot of the stuff I absolutely fundamentally need basic government services. The Democrats still have not figured out a way to convince voters of like it's common good. It's like the notion of a common good that we're all in this together, that if we all contribute our tax dollars, what, to the city or to the state, we'll get something back. By that, that notion has been on retreat since Ronald Reagan in 1980. Again, before my guest was born, Andrew Ellison. Again, before my producer was born. Seems like Democrats have been on the defensive for as long as I can remember. And finally, Kyle Rittenhouse trial opens today in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kyle Rittenhouse is the 18-year-old from Illinois who crossed the state line uh, in the aftermath of looting, rioting that uh, occurred, protests you might say, that went a little too far, occurred after uh, the Jacob Blake shooting by police officers in Kenosha. Killed two men, Kyle Rittenhouse. Killed two men and wounded another. Somehow or other, the judge in that case says, you can't call the men that uh, Rittenhouse killed victims, but you can call them looters. 
is prejudicial to Kyle Rittenhouse to call the people that he killed victims. But his defense lawyer can call them looters. (laughs) What a weird country, man. Very strange proceedings. You know, I, um, it's as though those victims, I can't call them victims. The dead people are on trial, not Kyle Rittenhouse. If I had to put my odds on it, I'd say that jury's going to come in. They're going to acquit him. That's just my sense of it. It's as though, you know, I don't know. These people shouldn't have been rioting. They shouldn't have been on the streets. They shouldn't have been protesting. They should have been in a home. And it doesn't, you know, does it? The same thing could be said about Kyle Rittenhouse. But it'd be said, okay, let's just, enough damage is done. Let's just make it call it a wash. That's where we're at right now. That's my sense of things. That judge ruling. You can't call the people who were dead victims. Can't call the victims victims, but you can call them looters. Wow. Anyway, that's the news. Uh, that hit me this morning as I were preparing for today's show. But I like to think uh, there was some good news. I wrote about this as a column for the reader this week. Uh, there was some good news in a bizarre, twisted way, uh, in a very quintessential Illinois way. Some good news. I'm claiming a little good news. Uh, and that good news was the congressional map that the Democrats passed the last week. I'm claiming it's good news. I I spent a good chunk of this weekend talking to people like my guest, Andrew Ellison, asking them to give a grade uh, to the map makers uh, on the map they created, the congressional map they created. And you probably heard a lot of uh, negativity about the map. Republicans are sobbing hysterically over the map, weeping how unfair the Democrats are and how J.B. Pritzker... Went back on his word and is a liar. J.B. Pritzker, as a gubernatorial candidate in 2018, uh, promised that he would leave map making in the hands of what? A nonpartisan group of non politicians. Well, that was a promise that I hope he w- intended to break from the moment he said it. Anyway, we'll get into all that. But he didn't obviously uh, put map making in the hands of a nonpartisan group of experts. He left it in the hands of an elected officials, state reps, state senators. Uh, and they passed a map that a congressional map that favors Democrats. So the, the Republicans response uh, is to cry how unfair the map is uh, to Republicans, even though the Republicans are doing the same exact thing to Democrats across the country. So in the state of Illinois, one state in this country, at least, Democrats did to Republicans what Republicans do on a routine, regular basis to Democrats across the country. And Republicans are crying hysterically about it. My general rule of thumb, this is me speaking, not my guest, Andrew Ellison. My general rule of thumb is that any time in this day and age when MAGA is crying hysterically and sobbing about how the system is working against them, it's probably good news for humanity. It's probably means good news for humanity. That's my general rule of thumb. Uh, so it's it look, folks, I'm not saying we found a cure to all that ails us, but I don't know. Just part of me likes to see Democrats do to Republicans what Republicans do to Democrats. And so now with that, as my introduction, I'm going to bring on Andrew Ellison, political activist, political strategist, 
uh, was uh, recommended to me by my good friend Lenny at the Chicago Reader. I see you, Lenny. Lenny said, you absolutely have to talk to Andrew Ellison. This kid knows more about politics than anyone in the state of Illinois. He's a freaking political junkie. I said, all right, let's bring on Andrew Ellison. So, Andrew, welcome to the show, young man. Thank you for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. All right. So, Andrew, before we uh, get into the specifics of uh, the map in Illinois, and he testified uh, uh, at uh, on the hearings about the map making uh, down in Springfield. Uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself? You're a freaking political junkie uh, and you've been involved in Democratic politics pretty much since you've been able to vote, maybe before you were able to vote. Uh, so uh, give folks a little bit about your background before we take the deep dive. Yeah, sure thing. Um, I, my, as you know, my name is Andrew Elson. I'm from Indiana originally. I'm a Hoosier born and raised. Um, I'm from Kokomo, Indiana, which is about an hour north of uh, Indianapolis, about an hour away from everything else. So we're, we're, we're the hub of North Central India. And I kind of got the political bug half from my mom and half from Barack Obama. That in the sense of uh, my mom is an AP government and AP economics teacher at Kokomo High School that I attended. I got to have her my senior year. And so uh, just growing up, she was always making me aware of, uh, you know, the political machinations of the world, just describing the news to me growing up with the Iraq war and the recession, all that. And so she, she was the inspiration for building that budding politico, so to speak. And the other half of it is that um, in 2008, uh, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton both came to my hometown in Kokomo in that Tisney primary because it, it went so long. It was so late in Indiana. It was very highly contested. Um, presidential candidates typically do not come to where I'm from, Kokomo, Indiana. You know, we're a working class community, about 60,000. And um, that, that was just really formative to me, being able to see a very dynamic presidential candidate in person. And so uh, that inspired me to pursue an interest in career in politics at the, the budding age of 14. And so... I, uh, I volunteered and interned on various campaigns throughout my time in Indiana, both in high school and then when I was in college, including being the campaign chair for my mom's school board campaign here in Kokomo. Uh, she'll be hoping to go for a third term next year. So, And um, in terms of uh, after I, I, I attended Indiana University, I studied political science there. And um, when I graduated in 2016, I came to Illinois and I was working on uh, various different campaigns. I was a field organizer for Tammy Duckworth in 2016 in the Galesburg and Peoria region. Uh, I was a finance assistant for Congressman Roger Krishnamurthy in 2017 and 2018. I lived in the Schomburg area, the northwest suburbs. Um, I was an organizer for Ann Gillespie's successful state senate campaign. And in 2019, I worked at the state legislature in the state house for uh, several representatives there. And so I've kind of gotten a different feel for uh, different parts of the state and getting to work around there. So it's, it's been a good opportunity so far. All right. So let me ask you this question. I asked uh, pretty much all uh, political activists, political strategists, this question, I pretty much asked lawyers this question. I asked everybody this question. Mm-hmm. You're a Democrat, but you realize you'd make more money if you were a Republican. Uh, and chances are in Indiana, you would definitely be on the winning side if you were a Republican. Uh, and mm-hmm. so Aren't you tempted just to say to hell with it and go to the other side? I ask this of lawyers all the time, like lawyers who battle Commonwealth Edison. I go, you guys can make so much more money if you need to work for Commonwealth Edison. You know what I'm saying? Wait, so are you ever tempted just to say out of hell with these ideals? I'm going to go with the winners who pay the most money. 
I never could. My, my ideals would never let me. I know that um, the Indiana Republican Party in particular, they, they lift up a lot of the younger voices within their party. And so, um, you know, if it's if it's a young white guy fresh out of IU, oh, they'd love to have him as a, as a whatever. And I'm, I'm sure that I could, you know, pursue a lot of opportunities on that end. But my my moral compass and my mother would probably never allow me to do that. So. <laughs> God bless your mother. Uh by the way, just she, think she, about she's that. just in the distance. She appreciates that. So, yeah, no, God bless her, man. It's always a mom. My mom dragged me out to vote when I was 18 years. So you're going to I was in college, man. I was smoking so much reefer. My mother called me up. <laughs> you're coming down home. and You're going to vote for uh, Abner Mikva in this congressional yeah. election. He needs your vote. <laughs> oh, ma. <laughs> anyway, just think that. about this. Mike Pence. You come from the state that brought us Mike Pence. How how typical of Hoosiers, how typical of Indiana voters is Mike Pence, in your humble opinion? I, in a way, I actually would say that he's a little bit of an aberration, just in the sense that um, he's he's from the Columbus area. He's from southeast Indiana. Um, sometimes a stereotype to the likes, like, like quote unquote, southern Indiana is dragging the state back in time or something like that. But really, I would even say it's more like the eastern part of the state, especially um, parts of rural northeastern uh, Indiana. Jim Banks is a congressman up there, and he he's just as bad as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Laura Boebert and all them. He's just not gotten as much attention, but he's he's up there. Um, but but parts of those eastern parts of the state and um, you, you know those the the northeast and the southeast they're very even even for Indiana like they're very uh, culturally conservative, very evangelical. Um, he uh, he he was he was pretty contentious even for. Um, the 2010s Republican Party. Uh, after he was gone, uh, you had Eric Holcomb became governor, and he's more of that old school Dick Luger, Mitch Daniels kind of, you know, just focused on business and tax cuts and not worried about social issues or anything like that. And um, and conservatives have hated Eric Holcomb for that. You know, the, the Libertarian got 11% in the governor's race last year against Holcomb because he was pushing all these mask mandates. It's like a Republican that believes in mask mandates. You don't find many of those, so... Um, I, I would say that uh, Mike Pence, at least in the past, was a bit of an aberration, although I do worry that that kind of strain of politics is becoming a little more mainstream there, unfortunately. By the way, let's just think about that for a moment. The, uh, the, the, the state of Indiana, the Libertarian got 11 percent in the last gubernatorial election, and yet the Republicans still won. Just think about that. And I just talked about this story breaking out of Florida where Roger Stone is threatening to run as a libertarian against Ron DeSantis. And that would presumably cause some concern to Ron DeSantis because you siphon off like 3% of the vote for Roger Stone, he would lose. 11, there's, Democrats are so behind the eight ball in the state of Indiana. The libertarian got 11% and the Democrats still couldn't beat Holcomb. Yeah, and, and it was unfortunate because it felt like um, Woody Myers was our nominee. Um, he he was the first black state public health commissioner back in the eighties during um, you know the the story with Ryan White, you know, with the AIDS crisis. Like he was the state public health commissioner who was fighting for Ryan White's ability to go to public school. And it's like you know we're in this year in twenty twenty. We're like you know you have the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, pushing for greater racial equity, and you have a public health crisis of COVID. It's like the first black public health commissioner in Indiana, this guy's straight out of central casting, but um, the campaign just wasn't really well funded. And people, I, I, I actually um, self-funded, I crowdfunded a poll of Indiana because it was, so, there was so little coverage of it. Uh, nobody's pulling the state. And I was like, well, I might as well. So I set up a GoFundMe and we raised like seven or $8,000 and 
um, we got the poll out there and it showed that, you know, Woody Myers, like half of the voters didn't even know who he was like three weeks before the election. So if, if we're not able to get our name out there and let people know that we're actually running an election, we got a candidate, it, it makes it hard to actually pull off a victory, even if you got the libertarian pulling 11 percent. Yeah. How much, what percent did he get? What Woody Myers get in that election? Um, I think he got 32. 32. Wow. Indiana. It was, it was the lowest. Goes. It was the lowest Democratic performance in generations, I would say. Um, all right, let's. That's a perfect opportunity to segue where we really want to talk to you about. Uh, we'll get into some, uh, take a deep dive here. We're going to talk about congressional redistricting uh, in Illinois and the map that was uh, just passed by the legislature. Uh, and we're going to, to contrast it, we'll show what the Republicans have done in Indiana. Uh, because as I said in the outset, um, you cannot believe any of the crying that comes from any Republican in the state of Illinois. This is me speaking, not Andrew. Andrew, if you want to disagree with me, feel free. You cannot believe any of the crying, in my humble opinion, the lamenting that goes on by Republicans in the, in the state of Illinois because uh, they are merely uh, looking the other way at what their Republican peers are doing in states throughout the country, which is the exact same thing uh, that Democrats did to them in Illinois. So let me just start by saying that in a perfect world, we would have uh, federal oversight of congressional redistricting so that it was as fair and equal in every state of the union so that we wouldn't have the situation we have now where we're each party uh, in trying to get the upper hand gerrymanders the hell out of the map with these crazy configurations for districts that are intended to preserve incumbencies of Democrats or Republicans or undercut completely uh, the political future of the party in a perfect world we would have uh by the way, I just saw your T-shirt, Andrew. You're, you are a liberal Democrat. You're wearing a, a Warren for President T-shirt. I just saw your T-shirt. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I had been hoping that she would run in the 2016 race as early as like right after the 2014 midterms. I thought, you know, she's, you know, she's got this progressive energy. And this is before. This is back when like she was better known nationally than even Bernie was. And so. Um, I've, I've always been a hardcore Warren believer. I, I'm very sad she didn't win the primary, but I'm, I'm still happy nonetheless that she yeah. gets to have a role in a Biden presidency. Uh, we, but we debated that one a lot in 2019 on the show, uh, Sanders versus Warren. Anyway, back, back to my, in a perfect world, we'd have uh, federal oversight and it would, everything would be fair and equitable, but we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where Republicans gerrymandering the hell out of maps across the country. So at the very, at, the outset, you cannot believe the sobbing that's coming from Republicans. They're complete hypocrites. They're crying about what's being done to them in Illinois while looking the other way. Republicans do it state by state. We'll break down to it. Okay, so the challenge in Illinois, uh, as as I laid it out, was Illinois lost population uh, relative to the rest of the country. So it's going to lose a congressional seat after the census. After 10 years, maps are redrawn. Uh, in order to guarantee that no district has any more or less number of people living in it than the other district, because that would be unfair. So you're trying to equalize the, the district's population. So it's fair. Uh, and um, so Illinois had uh, 18 congressional districts under the old map, under the new map, we lose one. We have 17 and uh, under the old map, it was 13 Republicans, Five Democrats. That's the, that's our congressional makeup. Uh, right other now. way around. Thirteen. My bad. Thirteen Dems. Five Republicans. Thank you. A little dyslexia <laughs> kicking in. Appreciate that, Andrew. Thirteen to five Democrats under the new map. 
presumably, if all things go well for the Democrats, it could be 14 to 3. So when the Democrats were done with their map making, somehow or other, <laughs> Democrats gained a seat, you know, potentially, uh, and Republicans lost two seats, potentially. And that's why uh, uh, Republicans are crying and Democrats are just sort of pretending they didn't do that to them, uh, except for me. I'm openly uh, gloating. All right. So, Andrew, how let's break it down that that that's what they did. How essentially did they do it? Where were uh, the um, the obvious areas in the state of Illinois that they manipulated and maneuvered in order to undercut the Republicans and benefit Democrats? Yes. So as you had prefaced earlier on, you, you give you give the map an A as in terms of uh, trying to achieve what Democrats are trying to do purely purely from a partisan perspective. Um, I would probably give it an A minus. I think there are small tweaks they could have made to improve, which I'll touch on. But um, in in terms of the goal of trying to elect 14 Democrats and, and just three Republicans, um, for the most part, I think this map was very successful with what they were setting out to do. Um there were, there were various competing concerns that they had to make, not just in terms of partisanship, but also parochial concerns at the local level. Um, and I guess we could kind of start there. The big one being that there was a very concerted push to create a second Latino opportunity district within the Chicagoland area. Um, as it stands now, um, if you're going by total population, not citizen voting age population, which is a little different, but by total population, um, Latinos are actually now the second biggest uh, uh, racial or ethnic group in the state, even beyond black representation. There are only more white people than Latinos. And so um, the legislative Latino caucuses and the Chicago Latino City Council, they were all pushing for a second Latino opportunity seat to elect um, a, a candidate of Latino voters choosing to create better representation in the state. The tricky thing is that if you're trying to go for a map that will elect 14 Democrats and just three Republicans, uh, that necessarily requires that you would have to have 12 Chicagoland Democratic leaning seats. The issue is that we already right now have 12 Democratic incumbents in the Chicagoland area. And so if you're creating a new Latino opportunity district in the Northwest suburbs, um, stretching all the way out to uh, West Chicago, um, necessarily that's going to negatively impact at least one other Chicagoland incumbent. One point that I really try to hammer home to people with the redistricting process, kind of the, the golden rule, so to speak, is that it's impossible to make everybody happy in the process. You know, some people are going to be happier than others. You want to, as, in, in as a utilitarian of a way as possible, you want to make it as many people as happy as possible. And sometimes you just can't avoid upsetting certain people. And the Latino caucuses had a bunch of clout. You know, they've got dozens of members in each chamber, you know, put together and all that. And so uh, they had the clout to force the second Latino opportunity district. What that necessarily meant was that the Democrats then had to figure out, well, if somebody in our delegation is going to get screwed, who's it going to be? And my operating assumption early on was that it would probably be uh, Marie Newman to some degree, just because she is the most junior member of the delegation from the region. I did not assume that Democrats were going to have the willpower to draw a second Latino seat just because of how much that would have rocked the boat. But then they went and did it. And then I, and then you have to go beyond that. Well, you know, if, if Newman is getting screwed, then maybe somebody else has to get screwed. Who's the second most likely? Well, it will be Sean Caston. You know, he's also a sophomore, but also he has some of the least cloud behind him as well. 
and he and Newman live almost right next to each other. And so it was very easy to draw a lot of their turf together into a single district. And so now that has incentivized a primary election between the two of them that I suspect could potentially get very nasty. There's probably going to be millions of dollars flooding into the state for that primary. And uh, even though Newman got drawn in with Chuy Garcia uh, into his district, she's still going to run for uh, this new district. So I, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, let me just uh, jump in and say in the old yeah. days, uh, <laughs> some powerhouse in the Democratic Party would have sent an emissary to Marie Newman and said, what do you want? You want to be a judge? I don't know. She's not a lawyer, so she doesn't want to be a judge. Uh, do you want a job with the uh, a Biden administration? Do you, you know, they would give her some incentive not for, to run for your election. That's how Richard J. Daly would have done. He wouldn't himself made the phone call. He would have sent an emissary. He would have had somebody that knew Marie Newman. You thought they could go have lunch together. You know what I mean? Uh, so mm-hmm. that's. Uh, and, and and then it's not a hundred percent of working, Andrew. You know what I mean? It, she may still say, "No, I want to run. I don't want to work for the Obama administration." So maybe uh, it would have required a phone call from uh, the mayor himself. Look, somehow or other, LBJ talked um, uh, Justice Goldberg out of giving Arthur Goldberg out of giving up his Supreme Court seat. This is ancient history that nobody remembers. I still can't believe he talked to Supreme Court justice and giving up his seat. But that is the style of government that the old Democrats used to play. Apparently, there's nobody who plays that role. Now, let's just pause and. and can, I, can I add one thought to that? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I think there could have actually been an avenue to do something like that in the sense that. Um, the Cook County Board of Commissioners, you know, they've got 17 seats and two of them are currently held by Republicans. They just finished redrawing the districts. Um, very unfortunately, they drew them in a way that protected the two Republican incumbents that are left. Um, you know, if you're playing hardball, you would think they would try to get rid of them. But they, they could have – one of them is like kind of in the northwest suburbs and then one is like the southwest. They could have drawn it in a way to maybe incentivize her. Well, maybe – like you want to be in Congress, maybe you could go to the Board of Commissioners. But – they didn't draw it in a, a very smart way to do that. And so I, it seems like all the way down, there could have been steps to incentivize certain behaviors, but it just wasn't followed through for whatever reason. That is a great point. I'm going to ask uh, Jacob Kaplan, the executive director of the Democratic Party, is going to be coming on the show next week. I'll ask him about that. Uh, that's a great Definitely. point. Uh, but I still don't know if you could convince a, a congresswoman to give up her position in Congress to become a Cook County commissioner. I do recall, uh, and the amount of information in my head about politics, Andrew, is sometimes frightening to me. But I do recall that there was a congressman named Roman Paczynski in the 1960s in the state who got uh, squeezed out in a similar redistricting matter and went to became an alderman in the city council. I'm not making this mm. up. Uh, so there is precedent for somebody uh, moving on. One could argue that an alderman has more power and clout than a congressman, at least locally mm-hmm. in the city of Chicago. But that's a discussion for another time. Certainly right. a shorter, shorter commute, to say the least. Yeah, it's a shorter <laughs> commute, but a hell of a lot more call, phone calls from complaining constituents. I believe right. Let's go back to the challenge. And again, in the abstract, if you're only, that you just laid out, the challenge you just laid out about having to create a, what you call a Latino opportunity district. Uh in a perfect world where all Democrats cared about was maximizing the strength of Democratic voters. And they did not have any, they didn't care at all about promoting um, Latino advancement in politics. 
they probably would have distributed those precincts differently, Andrew. Do you follow what I'm saying? To more, if you could spread your Hispanic excuse me, your democratic precincts around, you expand the democratic party. You, you, you expand the opportunity for Democrats as a whole, but if you concentrate them into one district, like they did to help a Latino get elected, then you undercut the party. This is the challenge that you were getting at that Democrats faced that Republicans really don't face because they don't care about advancing uh, Latino opportunity uh, in the state or any state. Do you follow what I'm saying? So, do you, am I am I correct in my premise that it's that's that's the the challenge that the Democrats face to promote Latino opportunity at the same time trying to maximize the strength of Democratic voters? Yes, um, it, redistricting is always a high wire act, and I would say that Illinois is probably among the ten trickiest states in the country to redistrict just because of. Uh, you're not just worried about partisan concerns. You're not just worried about specific parochial concerns, but you're having to worry about, um, you know, Voting Rights Act compliance with a lot of these uh, minority opportunity districts and the parochial concerns that they have. And so um, it, it is possible to balance partisan concerns with these. And so, for example, with the way that they've um, uh, drawn the first and second congressional districts, for example, which are both black opportunity districts held by uh, Bobby Rush and Robin Kelly, respectively, um, what they have to do to maintain 12 Chicagoland seats with only 17 seats left now total is that they have to spread very dramatically outside of the uh, uh, Chicagoland metro into very rural areas. They've got um, Robin Kelly's district is stretching all the way down to Danville and Rantoul now, which are not exactly, you know, south side voters to say the least. But along the way, um, in the rural areas, are picking up a lot of extremely Republican leaning voters and, um, one of the easiest ways to achieve partisan balance while also trying to achieve minority representation is to draw white Republicans in with black Democrats and just make it so that, um, you know, democratic voting black voters can overpower the white Republicans. Um, so that that's an effective way that they were able to make that balance so that they could make room for, uh, the seat that Castor and Newman have on the Southwest side. Um, so I, I think it's, it's still something worth pursuing in terms of creating that second Latino opportunity district. I didn't think there would be the, the wherewithal to do it, but I'm glad that they have. Um, but it's, it's definitely possible to um, kind, kind of draw some of those Republican-leaning rural areas in with these uh, Democratic voters. Uh, by the way, that was really well done. And I, I have a visualization in my mind of the second congressional district, which, by the way, way back 20 years ago, as uh, Andrew said, was concentrated on the far south side of Chicago. The uh, The first congressional district was was like from Hyde Park North and the second congressional district went south and then uh, went into the southern suburbs. Now you have to go way south to pick up the number of literal people you need. So that has an equalized number of residents uh, in that district as the other districts, but you do it in such a way that the the white Republicans you're picking up will never be a majority uh, in that district. And you're siphoning them away from other Republican districts. So you undercut uh, the Republican strength in those districts. That's gerrymandering. That's classic political gerrymandering, which I believe the courts have pretty much said is legal so long as it's uh, not racially biased. So sorry. The, the, yeah, go ahead. The, the, the federal courts have. Uh, Justice Roberts, the Supreme Court said that as, as far 
far as the federal courts are concerned, um, that the like any, any U.S. court, like they can't rule on any partisan considerations. The state courts still can based on their state uh, their state constitutions, but the federal level, it's a done deal. Done deal. Okay. Uh, and so uh, so that's how they preserve Robin Kelly and the Democrats in the second and undercut uh, uh, Republicans uh, downstate. Uh, before we leave the Latino opportunity issue alone, let, let me just talk about that Latino opportunity. So my reading of that phrase is that it does not guarantee the election of a Latino candidate, but it gives Latinos an opportunity, uh, a greater than normal opportunity to win. Am I correct in my reading of that phrase? That's exactly correct. Um, And this is a major reason that I was um, inclined to think that they wouldn't push this way just because there's, there's no, there's no legal necessity for it. Um, That's not to say that they can't do it. It's just that there's, there's no uh, BRA argument because, um, so like, let's take the fourth district, for example. Um, uh, the fourth district has more of the Southwest uh, Latino communities with Chuy Garcia in there. Um, when you look at that by total population, uh, Chuy Garcia's district comes out to about 66.5% Latino, which sounds like you're, you're packing a very large Latino community together. You know, do you really need that many? But it gets more complicated than that because that's including uh, both people who are under 18 who can't vote and uh, non-citizens who can't vote. And so once you go down to the, so when you go to the voting age population, you cut all the people out from under 18, it's only 63% Latino. And then when you're looking at the citizen voting age population estimates or citizen or uh, voting eligible population, as might call it, it goes all the way down to 51.7% Latino. And so you can see like a very dramatic drop off. And in the same way, when we're talking about this third district in the Northwest suburbs, this Latino opportunity seat, you start out with the total population is 47% Latino. So you're already starting with a plurality with everyone included. When you go down to just the voting age population is 43.8% Latino, 42.8% white. So you're getting very close there. And then when you're going by citizen voting age population, uh, it goes to all the way down to 35.5% Latino and is actually uh, a majority 51.5% white. And so there's, there's a strong likelihood that at least, um, Latino, and, and then you get into turnout issues where, you know, Latino voters have lower turnout rates than white voters as well. And so you might end up in a situation where um, in the Democratic primary, maybe Latino voters might be just enough to constitute a majority. But if you start getting into a situation where you have like like four or five, six, seven Latino candidates who are all running, they can kind of split that primary voting base. And then maybe a white candidate or somebody else might be able to slip through. And so while it creates an opportunity, uh, I don't think it's necessarily assured that it'll have that outcome. And that's why I, that's why I assumed uh, that they may not go that route. Yeah. What do you mean? Oh, you assume they may not go that route in uh, the map making. Is that what you meant? Correct. Yeah. That's why I because, you know, with the consideration that you might have to kind of screw over another member of your delegation to create it. uh, It was like, you know, the, the argument may not necessarily hold water there. So that was my thought process. Uh, and, uh, so this will be uh, the subject of intense behind the scenes maneuvering and negotiating, uh, Andrew, way above my pay grade as various politicians, uh, in Chicago and the suburbs wheel and deal to try to maneuver, uh, the other opponents potential rivals out of the race before it even starts. If you follow what I'm saying, um, so you clear the way. So, um, uh, I, just 
the one name that's kicked out a lot is uh, Alderman Vegas from Chicago as a possible candidate in this race. Uh, he would, if he was to want, if he did want to run, he would do everything he can to clear with every other Latino out of the race. So it is not like what you said, six candidates. Uh, and then they're running six Latino named candidates uh, running. Although we saw uh, with Michael Madigan's race, um, back in just throwing this a little historical perspective, Michael Joseph Madigan, former House Speaker, when he ran, what was it in 2016? Got 2016, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, against two Hispanic candidates, he got well over 60% of the vote. So it's not a guarantee that Latinos will vote for a Latino named candidate just yes. over everybody else. So it's, you're right. It, this one, there's, I don't think that district is going to go Republican. But no, this this yeah, this third district uh, gave Biden seventy percent of the vote. Trump only got twenty eight here, so I would I would not be sweating it if I was yeah. a Democrat. I would not be sweating it as a Democrat. All right, where I would be sweating it as a Democrat uh, is the district that they created, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, that's uh, uh, their hope is to replace retiring Congresswoman Sherry Bustos with a Democrat. Talk mm -hmm. about that district. Go ahead. Yes. So the 17th district, as they draw it, is a very sprawling district, um, to say the least. It, it looks like a deadly weapon of some sort, the shape that it's in. Um, it, it stretches, uh, it's, it's got Rockford in the very northeast part of the district, uh, stretches west to Freeport, and then drops down and grabs Sterling, goes out west to the Quad Cities, and then it just kind of cuts through Galesburg, Kewanee, Peoria, Macomb and then stretches all the way down to Bloomington Normal. And so it's it's a very sprawling district that grabs a lot of um, the smaller or mid-sized communities of uh, northern and central Illinois. This uh, particular seat, they've drawn it. Um, the 17th, as we've had it this last decade, uh, it used to be very strongly Democratic voting. Um, Shrey Bustos has obviously held it down for the whole decade from 2012 until now. Um, Barack Obama won it both times in 2008 and in 2012. And then uh, starting in 2016, and then again last year, as it exists now, uh, Trump has won it by two points each time. Mm. And uh, that still indicates a rightward trend because uh, Donald Trump got a very similar vote share last year, even though Joe Biden increased his national popular vote share by about 2.5%. And so the district has us drawn the rural areas they used to be friendly to us, but they're trending away. And so what Democrats have opted to do with the 17th is to draw a lot of those rural areas out and take in um, a little more of suburban areas in Rockford and Peoria, um, and especially dropping down to the Bloomington Normal area, uh, taking in Macomb, and, uh, and again, just making sure a lot of those rural areas are cut out to the point that it goes from a district that um, Donald Trump won by two points last year to it now being a district that... Joe Biden won by about 7.8%. And so the Democratic improvement has been very dramatic. Um, I think they could have done a little better just in the sense that um, they still left a lot of rural areas in the district um, in uh, Western Rock Island County, um, in Whiteside County, they could have thinned out some of the rural areas and then they could have added in more of suburban Bloomington normal. I think they left a lot of blue trending suburbs on the table there. And I'm not entirely sure why they made that decision, but um, on the whole, I think at least ne this next year, 
um, the district should be in a position where it should be able to hold on an elected Democrat, even if it doesn't last the entire decade. All right. Uh, that that's where the minus and the A minus comes, I think, right there, leaving blue trending suburbs off the table. I don't think Republicans would do that in a million years. I don't know what the Democratic map maker, makers were thinking. Uh, who knows whose interests they were quietly protecting? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to take a really deep dive on that one, Andrew. But yes, it is. It is. Uh, you're not the only person who said the A goes down to an A minus. And each instance, it's these blue yeah. trending suburbs. <laughs> I, that, that's that's the main thing that I give the A minus on, and that was what I I tried to emphasize it at both times that I spoke at the House and the Senate hearings last week. Was like, please put all the blue into normal in there. Just like even the, there are a couple red precincts that just throw the whole thing in, and like because they they've got a good as far as I've heard, I haven't met them. Like I've heard that they have a really good uh, Democratic operation that they've set up there. You know, it's it's a very canvassable area. It's just very suburban, so. Um, you know, if, if, if they want to send people out to Andalusia or, you know, rural Whiteside County, be my guess, but I don't know if they're going to get uh, a better reception there. So, and I, and I, I will say, I, I also noticed that they, uh, in the very last draft that they put out the last minute, they drew a little arm in the Northeastern part of Rockford, uh, just to grab Steve Stottleman's house. He's a, he's a state Senator up there and I know he's been looking at running. So, um, it was, it was not lost on me that that little bit of turf got added to it so uh that that is classic chicago map making oh my god i could tell you so many instances Andrew, where like you'll see like a little stretch like a like a, a finger that goes from the main part of the district and then there's a circle at the end of the finger and that circle if you look in the circle that's like where the alderman lives or where you know it's like for his brother-in-law lives there in a favorable precinct that's classic map making 101, yes. a little stick up in the air and in a circle. Uh, all right. You said that there was blue trending suburbs in what was the town again? Did you say normal? I just didn't hear the name. Yeah, it's it's two cities are kind of like a twin city situation. So normal is the northern city. Bloomington is the southern city. Yeah. Um, normal is where uh, Illinois State University is at. Right. Um, that, that's already been a blue area. Uh, Bloomington to the south of it is a little more traditionally Republican. Lots and lots and lots of white collar um, college educated residents. They, I think, like State Farm Insurance is there, and then they've got a, they, they've got a lot of insurance places set up there. And so, um, lots of white college educated residents who like used to vote Republican maybe back in the day for your, your George Bush types or something like that. Like they probably loved Mitt Romney, but. Um, but no, they're more democratic leaning. The, the McLean County, where it's in, um, it very barely voted for Obama in 2008, and then it voted for Romney in 2012 heavily, and then for Trump in 16. But Biden actually flipped that county last year, oh. and so um, the the trend has been very strong in that region. And the thing that I try to hammer home about this point generally, as you're alluding to, is that um, you know, these these suburban trends, these are not just isolated to Bloomington Normal. They're not just isolated to Illinois or even the U.S. Like this is, is a global realignment right now where more college educated areas or more highly educated areas generally are trending more toward left leaning parties and more working class, less educated areas are moving more toward conservative leaning parties. And so at least when I was approaching this, I was trying to put a lot more of those um, college educated suburbs in a lot of these uh, districts, especially the 17th, which is probably going to be the toughest to hold down. So it'll be interesting to see how those areas play out. And uh, so which districts got, these uh, blue trending su- suburbs, which district got them? 
Yes, they're primarily located within the 16th district, which is now the home for uh, Darren LaHood and Adam Kinzinger, but he took one look at it and he was like, I'm done. So, um, so those, those will be chilling out in that 16th district with LaHood. Do you, do you think that there's a possibility, I'm throwing this out there, that the map makers put those in the 16th congressional district uh, to reward Adam Kinzinger and try to keep him to run uh, for Congress as opposed to having running statewide? That's a very interesting point. Um, I hadn't really thought about that before. It just, it's uh, oh, well, it was interesting to me just because a lot of the 16th district as they've drawn it is very familiar to Kinzinger. Yeah. Um, even even more so than LaHood, because LaHood, most of his turf that he represents is now in uh, the 15th district that Rodney Davis lives in, uh, but that Mary Miller might try to take a run at. But that could certainly be the case, that they might have been including some suburbs hoping to incentivize uh, Kinzinger to run for that. But obviously that has not played out at this point. Yeah, it hasn't played out, and uh, nor would I ever recommend any Democrat do anything uh, in a map-making to help out uh, any Republican. Yes. Sorry, I just had that's my, uh, my little editorial comment, Andrew. Uh, I don't care how good that Republican is on the issue of Donald Trump's coup or attempted coup uh, with the insurrection of January 6th. But it does leave open the possibility that if population trends continue, that there will be Democratic inroads in the 16th congressional. So maybe six years down the road, it'll benefit uh, the Democrats. Or am I too idealistic? Um, Possibly too idealistic on that one, just in the sense that. um, uh, the, the 16th as it's been drawn only gave Biden 38% of the vote. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, the, 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 the rural district I've been drawn up there. I had, uh, wh- wh- I, I put out a plan when I testified the first time that would have been a 13, four plan, which wasn't even necessarily a plan that I was wedded to in the sense of like, like we have to do 13, four, but, um, I was very worried about the direction of the discourse that was approached just because the, the first map that the Democrats put out was like praying or it, it was like, it was framed as a 14, three map, but it was, it was a dummy map. It was just like send messages to certain people. And then I saw, um, uh, this man's name is Zach Kutsky. He had proposed a 15, two plan. And I was very concerned that Democrats were kind of taking their eye off the ball, like trying to get a little too greedy in the sense that like, the map might backfire in that sense. And so I went and testified and I tried to make the point of a 13, four and maybe like trying to ratchet down expectations a little bit. And like, I, I think that maybe helped move the overturn window back to a more uh, stable 14, three, but in, when you're going for a 14, three, um, you're necessarily having to pack these Republican districts really, really heavily with Republican votes. And so um, in that scenario, I would not uh, suspect that Democrats would ever have a shot at playing for any of the three seats intended for Republicans. You, you said 15-2, the 15-2 map. I remember that one was surfaced for a while. Uh, Zach yeah. Coastie, uh, who's actually been on the show. Um, but uh, why do you think that was overreach? I think it was overreach just because... Um, so as I know, the, the ceiling of what we can work with um, with Chicagoland is creating 12 Chicagoland-based seats um, at a certain point. So, so as I draw it right now, there, there are two seats that are intended downstate to elect Democrats. You, you got your 17th kind of in the, the north, central, northwest, going into the central. And then you have your 13th 
um, that goes from Champaign-Urbana through Decatur, the Springfield, and then all the way down to the, the Metro East, the suburbs of St. Louis. Um, and most uh, rational plans, I would say, that have been put out have proposed just going for those two secure seats. You know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yeah. And the concern was that the 15-2 plan that was being pushed um, was trying to create three downstate districts in a way that like, they're just not really possible anymore. Um, it like, I'd have to pull it up again, but I recall that it stretched the quad cities all the way out to Waukegan, you know, like, you know, you're, you're going from the Iowa border all the way to Lake Michigan. And so, um, the, the concern was that it was, it, it was, it was trying to stretch, uh, too many people too thin and um, that in a, in a bad wave election, you know, it, it, historically, you know, the midterm of a president is usually poor for their party. And so um, going into a midterm that might be difficult for Democrats, my concern was that at least the way they were framing a 15-2 map, that it was um, too overextended in certain parts and making too many assumptions about what was feasible, even just in the short term, let alone the long. Because they, they might decide, you know, like, we'll, we'll make a short-term gambit. And even if it fails later, like, we need to protect democracy we've got to maximize our joys. My concern was that like, even in the short term, it probably wouldn't have delivered what you wanted. And so I think um, what, what they ended up putting, I think was a reasonable compromise between the two with a 14-3 plan. Well, my proposal, um, which uh, nobody listened to, was to take Darren Bailey's district uh, and uh, put it in Alabama, the state of Alabama. <laughs> Uh, which I thought, I thought it was a perfectly reasonable district. You guys vote like you live in Alabama. Might as well vote there. Okay. We'll, All right. We'll, 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 we'll have Indiana annexes turf. I'm sure they would have it. <laughs> we'll give it to Indiana. You guys but, love the Hoosiers so much. Go become one. Uh, in, but Indiana, somebody, in, in, Indiana can that? take Darren Bailey's seat and Illinois can take Lake County. And we'll, there we go. We'll, I, the great sorting. We'll call seems it. like a reasonable exchange to me. I'd rather have yes. Lake County than uh, Darren Bailey. Uh, yes. But uh, somebody said it would be uh, unconstitutional, Ben, on a federal level. So we're not pursuing. Yes. Uh All right. So all kidding aside, let's take a look at what the Dems did downstate. Uh, they mm -hmm. called the Nikki Pazinski district. Mm -hmm. Nikki Pazinski. She's also been on this show, uh, former aide to uh, Governor Pritzker uh, and Democratic uh, strategist for a long time. And she's already announced that she will run in that district. And the district, uh, pretty much everybody says, has been, is favorable uh, to her future, to put it mildly. So who is the current uh, congressperson from that district and how do they reshape it? so that it would be favorable to Nikki Budzinski or any Democrat. Take it away, Andrew. Yeah, so the 13th district as it exists right now is nominally represented by Rodney Davis. Um, as it exists at this time, it, it stretches up. It's got an arm that takes in like the western parts of Bloomington Normal. Um, it's got Champaign-Urbana. And as I noted, you know, it, it, uh, they take into Decatur, Springfield. Um, and then it goes down to the Metro East, but it only has Edwardsville. And it has a lot of really red rural turf that used to vote Democratic, but it doesn't anymore. Um, they made assumptions in the last decade of redistricting that they thought they could get two seats in Southern Illinois. And um, as it turns out, the 13th never voted Democratic and the 12th only voted Democratic for one cycle. And then we lost in 2014. We never got it again. And so now you make it so that you just take the bluest parts of both of those seats and uh, you create a very blue district. And so they cut out a lot of that red rural turf that wasn't good for us anymore. Um, Christian County in particular is where Rodney Davis lives. And so they've drawn him out of the seat. He's no longer even the incumbent anymore. And they stretched the district all the way down to include all of, uh, you know, East St. Louis, 
um, and then going all the way down to Belleville. And so you create a seat that um, uh, the 13th, as it is now, voted for Donald Trump by 4% last year. Now, as they've redrawn it, um, Biden won it by 11.2%. And so, uh, whereas the 17th, you want to keep an eye on it at least, it'll probably still be swingy. Um, the 13th is a pretty inelastic seat um, that and and so with with yeah go ahead Sorry. no f- finish your last thought no yeah so, yeah and so with Rodney Davis being drawn out of the seat you know there's there's not going to be an incumbent concern there mm-hmm. and we can touch more on him with the fifteenth in what his plans might be but as as far as the thirteenth is concerned um, you know there there was news today that a bunch of um, uh, from, from the St. Louis suburbs, the Metro East, a lot of the legislators out there all endorsed Nikki Budzinski earlier today. And so um, assuming that she gets the primary on lock, uh, she could probably be a congresswoman there for as long as she wants. Yeah. So there you go. That's the Democratic seat uh, that they pick up that they've some Republicans. And uh, so now let's get back to uh, what I my, my favorite part of the map, I think, is uh, they put Mary Miller in the same district as Mike Boast. I want to say I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, and Mary Miller, of course, is the far right uh, congresswoman uh, who gained um, notoriety, uh, to put it mildly, with her quote that, quote, Hitler was right. Uh, three words I don't think any uh, politician in the United States of America should ever utter. Uh, her attempt to uh, apologize largely backfired. Uh, there are some people, myself included, uh, who thought that the apology was actually worse than the original statement, which is quite a feat when the original statement is Hitler was right. Uh, so anyway, that's Mary Miller. Uh, and she is now currently, I think when they redid it, she's in with Mike Boast. Uh, who is a uh, state, uh, used to be a state rep, gets a lot. We, we tease him a lot. He's the guy, this is way before your time, Andrew Ellsley, threw a hissy fit on the floor of the General oh, Assembly. Let, <laughs> let, let my people go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you, were paying it, you were probably in eighth grade when this happened <laughs> and you were paying attention. Unbelievable. Uh, yes, he threw the papers in the air and he goes, I'm sick of it. <laughs> in, the, in the it he was sick of was uh, a Michael Madigan, as uh, iron-fisted rule of the state house. Uh, Bosa since gone on to Congress, where he's become a reliable lapdog for Donald Trump. So it's not the iron fist itself that he objects to; it's the arm on the body of that iron fist. So some I'm iron fists are better than others. He apparently likes Donald Trump's iron fist, uh, but not Michael Madigan's. Um, and, anyway, so uh, and, and, and and I'll say to that ad, you know, it was it was just interesting that um, you know, that, and that was the 2014 campaign where we we had that 12th district for what the one term and then we never had it again. You know, when when Democrats were running in that campaign, they were running a bunch of ads with those comments. You know, the video of him throwing the papers and you know looking like a lunatic and all that. But the people down there loved that because it looks like you know, pe- <laughs> really, like people are down there, like people down there, like there's there's. I've worked in downstate and all that. Like, I've seen there's a palpable, like, anti-Chicagoland energy. And you got this guy, like, throwing the papers around being like, y'all, let my people go. Like, they love that. And so, like, it's that was an example of, like, Democrats are kind of missing the message there, you know. And so that that was an interesting race to walk. I, I, by the way, who who did he beat in that race? I can't remember just off the top Uh, of my head. Bill Enyard. Yeah. Wow. Damn, Andrew, you know, you do know your stuff. Uh, that could be a cry for help, Andrew, that you knew the answer to that. Uh, but I, uh, it's my burden. Uh, I would, I'm completely with you. I, I kind of liked it. 
I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think he's full of it. Like, it's not a pr- principle that unites. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that he's against. You know, he's not for liberty. He's, it's not like he's for Congress legislators uh, having an ability, more freedom. It's that he just objects to Michael Madigan. But I still like it. I kind of like the feisties in a way that I kind of like John Catanzara. There's aspects of what Johnny C does up here in Chicago where he denounces the mayor as a tyrant. You know, that kind of plays. To, I don't like what John Catanzara is trying to do. You know what I'm saying? But like, oh, yeah, the spirit there. I, can't, I understand it. So, yes, I get your point. And Democrats, uh, they, they definitely underestimated the uh, appeal. Uh, a both. So anyway, so here we have Boast and Miller in the same district. Mary Miller, Bo- two magas. They'll be battling it out to see who is the biggest supplicant to Donald Trump. Uh, who's going to be the bigger brown noser to Donald Trump? That'll be an interesting fight. Uh, what's your sense of? Do you think Miller will run against Boast, or do you think she'll just go to another district and uh, maybe take on Ronnie Davis? Your thoughts? If if I was advising her, and I would never do that in my wildest dreams, I will resign immediately. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that's the thing. Like if I'm if I'm if I'm a Republican operative, I'm getting free advice here. Like if if I'm if I'm giving advice to candidates, like two things: like don't talk about Hitler, and like don't talk about abortion juxtaposed to rape. Like these are two very easy principles, and somehow they keep doing it. I don't I don't know. It's weird, but like you know, in that situation, I don't know. If she ran against boss, I don't know who would win. Like that would be a very interesting primary to watch. If if I was advising her, I would almost say just screw it and just run for the fifteenth district where Rodney Davis has been left alone. Um, I think it was very interesting that um, because some of the, de- the the earlier Democratic plans that were being pushed forward, they were drawing um, uh, they, they were drawing Darren LaHood and Mary Miller together, which I'd, I'd never conceived as an idea. They, they had this big long arm stretching from Peoria out to, you know, the, uh, out, out Southeast. And so, um, I, I think it's very interesting that they left Rodney Davis in a very red district on his own, maybe to incentivize him to stay there. It, I don't think it should be lost on your listeners or anyone else that Adam Kinzinger immediately announced that he was done, but that we've not heard a peep from Rodney Davis by comparison. And I think that's precisely because Rodney Davis, like his chess piece can't move until other pieces move. And most specifically what Mary Miller announces she's going to do. If she announces that she's going to go for the 15th and Severin gets boast, Rodney Davis then might decide, okay, now I'll run for governor or something else. But if she decides to stay where she's at and run against boast, he may decide, you know, I'll take my chances on a safer seat and see if I can just chill out for a decade. And so I think for him, it's a wait and see. A very good point. And uh, so let's talk about that. Uh, I would s- s- say that uh, Rodney Davis running against J.B. Pritzker would have some parallels uh, to Youngkin uh, uh, running uh, in Virginia, where he's not defying MAGA. He's just trying to give MAGA what it wants in a way that doesn't alienate swing voters or independents or moderates. I think Rodney Davis would try to play that same game. Your thoughts? I, I absolutely agree. Um, and that was my main concern with how Democrats were initially playing it. And they were putting out like the subpar 14-3 map at the 15-2. Um, 
you know, in, in my conversations, it sounds like if, if I hadn't spoken up pushing back with the 13-4, maybe they would have been trying to go for a 16-1, <laughs> like, like, re- like really, really pushing the limit there. And so I think um, – 16-1. Yeah, and so wow. I, my, my fear is that Democrats were overplaying their hand, and, you know, like it's, it's always tough to know exactly what the, like, quote-unquote, the issue of a midterm is until like, you're – you're maybe within like three to six months of the midterm. And so the, the issues are still gestating. Like, like when we pulled out of Afghanistan, we're basically, Oh, this is a, you know, this is going to be horrible for, but like it's, it's, it's November and nobody's talking about it anymore. And we got a year to go. And so um, these issues are always changing, but it seems like the issue that Republicans are kind of moving toward is a combination of like the critical race theory, but also like crime, especially um, trying to focus on like rising crime. I know that that's already becoming a thing in Chicago. And so um you know, and, and there's this there's this very palpable uh, negative energy, I feel, that's kind of been pent up in Illinois politics the last couple of years, um, especially a lot of the pushback to Madigan, like when we saw uh, the, the fair tax failed last year and, and Justice Kilbride lost his retention. And I don't think that negative energy is gone. People didn't go to the booth, vote no on those things. Like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm happy again. Like, these people are still upset. Yeah. And you're seeing in a lot of these southern counties – um, they've been having these referendums for seceding from Illinois and they keep passing with 70 and 80% of the vote. Um, and these are very Republican counties, but I think it, it speaks to the fact that um, there is this pent up anger in downstate that I think a lot of Democrats in Chicago have been underestimating. And that I think, uh, you know, Prisker and Duckworth who are both going to be up next year, both of them in their elections in 2016, 2018 uh, did disproportionately well in a lot of central and Southern Illinois uh, compared to Hillary or Biden or Durbin. And I don't think they're going to get those kinds of margins anymore. And so I think as we go into next year, we could be in a situation where each of them are maybe only winning by high single digits or maybe even closer. And as somebody like Rodney Davis running against Pritzker could be in a position to capitalize on that anger downstate in the suburbs and maybe make a race out of it. And so I, I think both of them are still favored but they really need to keep their eye on the ball because in a, in a Biden midterm backlash, um, Illinois is especially poised for a lot of that backlash against Democrats. Well put. And uh, so this leads me to this point. Uh, I have no answer to this. And I don't know if you do. Uh, so w- we've been talking about maintaining a Democratic edge and the maps by gerrymandering, by selective selecting blue trending suburbs and putting them into uh, a, a Democratic, hardcore Democratic areas in such a very clever way that you undercut Republicans. The other way to do it, of course, is to head more into the uh, fair map country. I put that in quotes uh, and draw districts that are contiguous as much as possible. So they have, they resemble some real shape if it's like a square or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And then do what you can to recruit voters uh, to your cause. Now I'm, hesitant to endorse that because first of all, Republicans don't endorse it anywhere. We'll get in the Indiana in a little bit. Uh, but I also note the trend that you're talking about, which is that more and more Republicans, uh, more and more downstate voters are moving away from the Democrats. And uh, Dennis, our producer lives, is from Alton. And he always is telling me about the Pritzker sucks signs that he sees. Uh, he even saw a Darren Bailey's for governor sign, not, not, not too far from his home in Alton. So I realize what you're saying is very true. Andrew, uh, do you see any chance that the Democrats can tailor a, uh, a campaign that could win back some of these voters. 
Um, not, not to the degree that like we'll be flipping these places back outright. And so, um, we use my hometown of Kokomo as an example. Um, you know, Kokomo is a city that voted for, uh, Obama by 54% to 45% in 2008 and, um, voted from again, 50% to 48 in 2012. Um, you know, it's not, not super blue, but kind of a working class, uh, community, um, still significantly to the left of the state. And by the time Trump came around, you know, he's, he's winning the city like 58 to 36 or something like that in, in 2016. And I knew, I knew right away on election night in 2016, when I saw that, you know, this, this formerly 45% Obama County was only giving Hillary 30. I was like, well, either something's up in Indiana or something else is up generally. And it ended mm-hmm. up being a general thing. And, and, you know, go, go, he, he, Trump got 58, 36 in 2016. And then last year he won Kokomo 60 to 38. Wow. He, he, people saw people in the city saw four years of Donald Trump said, yes, I'd like more of that, please. And that's very concerning. So, um, so, and, and you see that kind of scattered throughout much of Illinois as well, uh, especially downstate. And so I think, um, a lot of this is just, again, like a national and also like global realignment that's happening that you, you can only do so much to control for. You, you can have on the ground operations reaching out to people and those things do make a difference uh, on the margins. But on the whole, um, people are driven to vote by identity, not policy. They're, they're driven by uh, vibes, pretty much. You know, which, which candidate, it's that old test, you know, which candidate can you, can you have a beer with? Um, but also which candidate do I feel like in terms of identity speaks to what I really care about. And, uh, you know, a lot of voters in these areas, they feel that Donald Trump is speaking to their identity, whatever that might be more than any other democratic candidate can. And as long as he's, you know, you know, it looks like they're going to run a third time. As long as he's the face of their party, you know, those voters are going to feel like he's speaking to them more than pretty much any candidate we can run. And the kind of candidate that we would have to run to win a lot of those voters back are the kind of voters who might not say that black lives matter or care about LGBTQ rights or, or being pro-choice. And so I think it's, it's a conscious choice that has to be made, but the choice is kind of baked in and that the time is maybe better spent trying to find voters who haven't always been turning out who are leaning our way um, or, or, or finding some more middle of the ground road. Like pe- people who went from Obama to Trump, they're probably going to stay there just as people who went from Romney to Clinton to Biden they're going to be sticking with us. So I, I think pursuing that avenue is uh, probably more fortuitous going into the future. That's a very good analysis. And, and uh, I, I must confess to Andrew that in 2016, I predicted a Hillary uh, victory precisely because I could not imagine a voter who uh, supported Barack Obama voting for Donald Trump. Boy, was I wrong. And I admit I was wrong. Uh, I don't know everything, Andrew. That's for sure. So, I, 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 I think ahead. it's worth I think it's worth emphasizing that um, I, I think it's lost on people. But Barack Obama did genuinely have like some appeal with white working class voters in a way that um, Hillary didn't. And then Hillary had strong appeal with Latino voters uh, in a way that even Joe Biden didn't. And so I think uh, a lot of times, even if we we rag on a candidate, you know, oh, they're they're not as great at whatever. Like every candidate has has pluses in addition to the minuses. And so. Uh, you know, even even though like Obama had like a record low performance in West Virginia, he's only getting forty percent in West Virginia. If Biden was getting forty percent in West Virginia today, we'd think it'd be like a twenty point blowout. And so there's <laughs> there, there's there's always there's always room to maneuver with that. So 
Uh, yeah, I still don't understand how somebody voted for Barack Obama in 20, oh, 2008 would turn around uh, and vote for Donald Trump in 2016. It's re- really bizarre, and I think it's in the realm more of, of, of a Freud uh, as opposed to an Andrew Ellison to explain that to me. All right, uh, we'll close with a brief recitation. So we, sh- we a very good job, Andrew, of showing what Democrats did in the state of Illinois uh, to uh, pick up a district potentially it's going to be a fight in the 17th i think you're absolutely correct uh and um they may win at this time but you're right every year it'll be a battle uh so what did the republicans do in indiana so so uh, republicans in illinois stop being so self-righteous and filled with self-pity and listen to what your counterparts your brothers and sisters in the state of indiana did uh to democrats so uh go ahead just give us the the general playing field there. Yeah. So, um, uh, Indiana, they handled their redistricting in the last month, just a little ahead of Illinois by a couple of weeks. And so, um, thankfully Indiana and Illinois were separate enough in time that I was able to spend time working on Indiana. In addition to Illinois, um, uh, Indiana Senate Democrats actually used my nonpartisan congressional map that I drew as their counter proposal to what Republicans drew. Um, uh, Illinois Republicans did not put up a counter proposal by comparison. And so uh, at least we have something to compare against in that respect. And I've, I've posted it on my Twitter profile if people want to look at it. Um, but the, the general gist of what happened is that I think Republicans were very effective at uh, managing the messaging of the process, whereas I felt like Illinois Democrats weren't in the beginning in the sense that um, currently there are nine districts in Indiana Two of them are held by Democrats, one in the northwest part of the state, the outer suburbs of Chicagoland. You've got Gary, Hammond, uh, Merrillville, places like that. And the other is in Indianapolis, a very blue district that's very blue trending. And you have seven Republican seats. The issue is that the 5th Congressional District, which was centered on the northern suburbs of Marion County, Indianapolis, uh, was along with uh, Hamilton County, which is the north suburbs Minneapolis, and then a bunch of rural areas to the north. Um, that district had been trending very democratic this last decade, as all suburbs were across the country, to the point that Republicans only held it in an open seat race last year by about three or four percent. And so, what they ended up doing was they they redrew the district. They took all of Indianapolis out of it and put it in the blue seventh district, and then they pushed it even further up into rural and working class northern communities like Kokomo. Um, to make it go from a district that I think Trump won by maybe a couple points, that Biden might have even won it by a point or so, uh, going to a district that Trump won by 16 and uh, making it thoroughly unwinnable for Democrats. But Republicans were very good at the messaging in the sense that they were putting feelers or like putting trial balloons out early in the process before they released anything, um, hinting at the fact that they might mess with the first district in northwestern Indiana. Uh, Frank Morvan's district up there. And so uh, Democrats spent all their time fretting about, oh, they're going to get rid of the first district. we got to do whatever. And then they put out a, a map that looks very clean. I suppose the Illinois map, like the, the districts look clean. They let the first district alone, but they, they changed the fifth to be redder. But Democrats spent so much time focused on the first district that by the time it came out, they're like, oh, well, they didn't mess with the first, so it's okay. And then I'm sitting here, I'm like, wait, no. Like there should be, there, you, you can draw a suburban district around Indianapolis that Joe Biden won by like two points and that Joe Donnelly won by three points in 2018. But all of the wind just got sucked out of it. And I felt 
very alone on that. So, um, you know, if, if we pass the For the People Act, you know, institute some kind of nonpartisan redistricting system across the country, you could end up in a scenario where, you know, Illinois Democrats might be getting one or two or even three fewer seats, but that Democrats can be playing for a new seat in the Indianapolis suburbs. And you can see that in pretty much any state across the country. And so uh, in closing, you know, with that system across the board, the number of seats, if, if you if you just reshuffled everything to be nonpartisan, the number of seats that would shift around probably wouldn't change that much, but you would probably end up with a districting system that would get much better communities of interest instead of having like 12 Chicagoland seats sprawling all the way onto rural areas or having the, the wealthy Indianapolis suburbs being lumped in with, you know, Kokomo, Indiana, which is a more working class community. Yeah, absolutely. I, I again, we'll close with the advocating the principle. And that was a great point you made that the, the last that I wish I had made earlier. Uh, and that if there is legislation right now, uh, that to achieve that goal of a of a nonpartisan redistricting uh, oversight authority of that would uh, eliminate gerrymandering or reduce its impact, uh, and that measure is being. I, I can't think of any Republican senator who's for it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't believe there's any Republican senator that's for it. Am I f- overlooking one? Is there a Republican senator somewhere, U.S. senator, who's endorsed that bill? Uh, every single one of them has voted against every single election measure that we put forward. Okay, there you go. So this underscores the point I was making. There's such frauds, the Republicans. This situation we have now of gerrymandering works to their advantage. And it's the reason why they're on the precipice of regaining the House. Uh, it's the only way I think, Andrew, they can regain the House. Because overall, people vote Democrat crap more than they vote Republican in these congressional races, if you just add up all the total. And um, so gerrymandering works to the Republican advantage, and they only cry about it in states like Illinois, <laughs> the few states where it works to their disadvantage. So Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Andrew, it's been a blast talking politics with you. Lenny was not joking. You do know your stuff. She says you got to talk to this kid. He's unbelievable. And so I thank you for taking the time uh, to uh, talk to me and uh, explain what happened in Illinois and what happened in Indiana. Uh, and for my listeners, why don't you just uh, tell them where they can follow you? You mentioned a Twitter feed. I'm sure you update uh, your millennial. So I'm sure, or maybe you're Una Z. I don't know what you are. Uh, I'm sure you update all the time. So give folks your Twitter uh, handle so that they can uh, follow you. Yeah, sure thing. I, I was born in 94. And so I'm, I'm like, barely a millennial. I'm like around the bubble, but, um, I, my, my sensibilities lie with Gen Z. So I, I appreciate that. Um, but my, uh, my Twitter handle, it's, uh, at Andrew P Ellison, or you can just look up Andrew Ellison on Twitter. You'll probably find me there. If, if, if you see a map at the top, it's probably me. So, <laughs> if you see a map at the top, all right. Yes. Thank you very much, Andrew. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. You did a great job. And uh, I want to thank your mom for making you a good Democrat or a good liberal or a good whatever you are. Uh, she did a good job as well. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. We, we've got my dad voting blue, too. He, he, he voted red from 80 to 2016, and we got him on board, too. So All right. Daddy Ellison came aboard. <laughs> Good job. I don't know who was responsible for that, but that's one of the few. We went from 
We talked about Obama voters who went for Trump. Uh, he was a McCain voter who went for Hillary. Man, that's wow. So somebody, I give him credit. Or maybe he just had a personal evolution of sorts, and I give him all the credit. Uh, I, I, all right, Andrew Ellison. better part of a decade there. So oh, <laughs> It's like yeah. water and stone, tripping, yes. dripping, dripping. <laughs> All right, Andrew Ellison, thank you very much. I also want to thank uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Andrew Ellison and his father will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Thank you. I want an answer. I'm sick of it! I'm sick of it! Every year! We give power to one person! I want an answer. It's not something you ignore.